Okay, so this is our second session on the theology of the body. Um, Monday we had an overview of some of the themes. So, um, sorry, let me get the right. Yeah, that's right. So, original man, historical man, and eschatological, were the three stages. Um, so, historical man, as we experience him, wounded by the effects of original sin, eschatological man in the fullness of our redeemed state that the resurrected body will be the fullness of the redeemed state but will still be a, a body um, that it will therefore contemplating it shows us something about our present reality and the original reality the original state we considered um, original solitude uh, original unity and original nakedness. So solitude that Adam, there he was in the garden, he was alone, but yearning for a completion. Um, Ad, um, Eve is made, and through their bodies they recognize each other, they recognize what they are in themselves, that the man's masculinity he recognizes in seeing the femininity of the woman. That that tells them something about each other and how they are built for each other. And built in particular, so this is about unity, but they see it in their original nakedness, in which they feel with no shame. But that their bodies teach them about each other, about themselves, and teach them that they are built for gift. That it is in the gift of self um, that we find ourselves. That we are made to love. That love is a gift of self. And the body has this um, nuptial meaning. One day I'll learn to spell. Um, this nuptial meaning in the body, this wedding meaning in the body, that actually teaches me what I am. That I'm made for unity, I'm made for another, I'm made for love. And as a, you probably picked up in the reading from Waldstein uh, for today, so Immanuel Kant had this vision of the dignity of the human person. But it was a very individual human person. I am a rational being alone, and no one is to threaten my autonomy. Autonomy being the kind of defining characteristic of the rational being. Which is utterly different from the dignity of the human person in this structure, where the person isn't this individual, but is inherently relational, inherently made for another and that when we look at the body we see this
So we experience in history this in a fallen state, concupiscence, um, lust, distracts us, wounds our ability to experience that original meaning, but that original meaning is still there. And with, with grace and with redemption, we can reacquire the fullness of that meaning, even though the f complete fullness will only be realized in the eschaton. Sound familiar from Monday? And I am aware I am summarizing in two lectures a vast corpus. Um, I'm aware that I'm summarizing it through secondary sources. So I'm not a, a first hand scholar of John Paul II. Um, but hopefully, um, this is going to teach us something useful. So what I want to do with you today, so the remaining lecture notes, what are we looking at today? That's kind of a summary of Monday. Applying this specifically to two things, the marriage act itself, what is the marriage act? And um, in particular, the question of contraception. So as both the reading material from Monday and today was indicating, that actually was what structured, what was the goal in John Paul II's mind from the very beginning. Um, not only that, it was a, a vision of human dignity beyond that, but that this wasn't some thing he slapped on at the end, the final 15 um, general audiences. No, this was actually where he was heading from the beginning, even though it's also about the broad dignity of the human person. So, I can turn to page seven of my lecture notes that I gave you on Monday. So, titled this page, Theology of the Body, the Marital Act, and Contraception. And this is basically what I'm aiming to look at with you this morning. So, I asked the question in italics at the top of the page there. What is the nature of the marital act? And how did John Paul II renew theology's understanding of the marital act. And I note that moral theology's analysis always depends on knowing what is the nature of a particular act we're considering. If we don't know the activity we're considering, we can't know the right way to do it, or the wrong way. So how do we describe the marriage act? Well, I notice here historically the situation before the council, at the council, and after. So pre-concilia. So those who call themselves progressives, um, they complained about what they called physicalism. Now what was physicalism? Say descriptions of the sexual act that allegedly identify the demands of the natural law with the physical and biological processes, such that an individual may not interfere with the animal processes and finalities of his body. So, as I phrase it there, condoms are wrong. Why are condoms wrong? Because they stop semen reaching its physical goal. 
just about a physical structure, the action is wrong because it interrupts the physical structure. So you equate biology um, and law. And I know that that's a progressive stereotype of the Thomistic analysis. It isn't the Thomistic analysis. But this was one of the complaints going up to the council. Um, you know, one of the leading uh, dissenters um, within the church was Charles Curran. He particularly uses this phrase, so I footnote him there um, on that. Um, we'll come back to him when we look at Janet Smith. If you've been doing the reading for the assignment already, you may have come up across already some of her complaints with this. But this was one of the critiques before. So how was the marriage act being described? Well, one of the complaints, it was being described in an overly physical manner. So Vatican II, um, Vatican II on one sense didn't say anything that specific on this point, but there was a call for a renewal that Gaudium et Spes called for objective standards based on the dignity of the human person and his acts. And it's reference to understanding conjugal, uh, and it said that in, with reference to understanding conjugal love and responsible parenthood. Um, when Humana Vitae came out, um, so Paul VI partially bypassed the traditional terminology and spoke simply of the need for the unitive and procreative meanings inherent and inseparable in the marital act. So he didn't, you know, one of the critiques of the Humana Vitae document is that it was more an exposition than an argument. Um, and actually, in, an encyclical typically doesn't argue its case, it describes it. It's a teaching document, not an apologetic document. So it gives the teaching of these inseparable meanings, unitive and procreative. But, as I do say in the footnote there, actually even doing so, it does refer to the things that Charles Curran and the like would call physicalism. So, Footnote 35 there, I say, with respect to the alleged physicalism, Humanity, paragraph 17, spoke of a need for reverence due to the whole organism and its natural functions. And similarly, paragraph 10, human reason needs to be aware of and respect the functions inherent in the biological structures of the sexual act. So actually, that is there in Humanity even though it's not the focus of Humanitas' presentation. And I would say, as a Thomist, you can't really ignore the biology. It is part of what we are. So what does theology of the body do? Well, I'd say, as I put there in those bullet points, positively it restores the significance of the body. So Charles Curran and others are complaining about physicalism. Well, in response, here you have a different presentation, but nonetheless the body being presented. And so it's therefore in continuity with the tradition and defendant. So it repackages the analysis in terms of personalism and self-gift. And that makes it therefore a significant renewal and development of the tradition. It's not just repeating the tradition, it's, it's renewing it. And thus with that, the theology of the body significantly enriches 
the understanding of the nature of the act. So what is the act? Well, yes, John Paul II is going to talk about biology and physical things, but actually he's broadened the picture, deepened the significance of what's going on. And particularly with respect to contraception, he reaffirms the teachings of Humana Vitae, even though, as I say, those only explicitly appear in the last 15 general audiences. They were there in his plan, as he says at that stage from the beginning. An outline of the situation before, after, with him, with respect to how the act itself is being described. So page eight, how then is the marriage act described if we're describing it in the theology of the body context? So going through my bullet points, in the marriage act, the couple, he says, speak to each other through their bodies. So the language of the body, my body speaks. With my spouse, my body speaks. The act is a revelatory, interpersonal language. It uses the word a prophetic language. You know, the prophet speaks on behalf of the Lord, or the body speaks on behalf of the person. And it speaks a language of total self-giving. The human person is made for self-gifts. So as we looked up on Monday, made in the image and likeness of God, so we've got a unique dignity, made with a vocation to love, and with a vocation to self-donation, which also expresses our dignity. God gives himself, we're in his image, we give ourselves. This language of the body, what does it point to? Well, it points to the nuptial meaning of the body, the wedding meaning of the body. That there is in the body a capacity for reciprocal self-giving. There's a communion of persons, never treating the other as a mere object. So as I noted on Monday, there's this thing called the personalist norm, that you always should be relating to the other as a person, not just as an object to be used. So what then is the marital act? It expresses total and mutual self-giving. In the marital act, man and woman reciprocally express themselves in the fullest and most profound way. And this is made possible by their somatic bodily dimension in the language of the It's only in the commitment and faithfulness of marriage that that self-giving is possible. And the total self-giving in this conjugal act reflects the total divine self-giving in love to humanity. So this is where that connects back to the thing of creation, that creation is the gift of God to humanity. We are made in that image of giving, and the marital act is expressing that in its structure. In particular, fertility. So John Paul II 
says that fertility is part of self-giving. That the body, what does it speak? It speaks of potential fruitfulness. But that isn't something you're adding to the equation. That is of the nature of the body. This is of the nature of the male-female body as they engage with each other in the marital acts. Then I quote two different commentators on him. So, um, who was the first one? Cormac Burke. So that's some years ago, but he was early on one of the early defenders and articulators of his position. And he phrases it this way. So this is what a husband would say to his wife and vice versa. I am yours. I give you my heart. Here, take it. That remains mere poetry. And no physical to which no physical gesture can give true body. But he says, in contrast, I am yours, I give you my seed, here, take it. That is no poetry, it's love. I give you what I give no one else. So to repeat, I give you my heart, well, that does mean something, but it's only poetry. I give you my seed, this is actually something bodily, complete, um, something that the husband gives his wife that he doesn't give to anyone else. Then in reverse, um, and here actually I haven't put noted it, but this is Janet Smith, who I do footnote later, um, to say, I give you everything, but not my fertility, is a contradiction. It's not a full self You know, giving you everything is giving my fertility as well. And so with this, in his articulation about fertility, um, John Paul II, as I quote there, he deplored an anti-life mentality that he saw in so many United Nations government programs being imposed around the world. So where does that leave us with respect to contraception? Um, anyone want to comment thus far? Okay, so page nine of my notes there. So how does this get kind of put together, in particular the question of contraception? Well, Humana Vitae had this statement that the unitive and procreative meanings of the marital act can never be separated. Um, and so, um, Daniel, would you mind reading that block quote sure. in, the con- in the Conjugal Act? The conjugal act does not elicit to separate artificially the unitive meaning from the procreative meaning, because the one as well as the other belong to the innermost truth of the conjugal act. The one is realized together with the other, and in a certain way the one through the other. When the conjugal act is deprived of its inner truth, 
because it's because it is deprived artificially of its co-creative capacity, it also ceases to be an act of love. Now I'll come back to that phrase in a bit, but this phrase, the unitive, um, is through the procreative. So these two meanings, he's saying, it's not just that they occur at the same time, but actually one happens through the other. And if you attack one, therefore you are attacking the other. So when a husband and wife have a child together, that having a child bonds them together, whether they want it or not. There is something they have in common forever. Um, having a child together unites them. And this is inherent in the nature of the act. And that being open to that, open to that procreation is part of what bonds them together in the unitive meaning. So to repeat that, these aren't just two things in parallel, the unitive and procreative, but these are two things that find their meaning through each other. Okay, my next bullet point there. Contraception falsifies authentic conjugal love and that man and woman become, John Paul II says, arbiters and manipulators of the divine plan. Um, so as you'd have read in Baldstein's commentary, um, you know, when you saw about Bacon, this thing about man being the master of nature, the dominator of nature, um, the vision that it is proper to man to, to manipulate, to be the arbiter of any meaning of things. And John Paul II is saying the reverse, that actually there is a meaning in us that we don't choose, that we destroy, we harm that meaning if we seek to become arbiters of the divine plan. And with that, contraception degrades human sexuality and, in the end, degrades both partners because it alters the meaning of the total gift of self. So if there is this total gift of self built into the meaning of my body, and if I just manipulate that, I'm not just manipulating my fertility, I'm changing something in my relationship to my spouse. I'm blocking that total gift between my spouse and myself. So, you know, a lot of commentators will talk about the, the condom being physically symbolic of that, the, the barrier between the man and the woman being a barrier between their, their relationship to each other, that there's no longer a full gift of self. Something's being held back. Now that doesn't mean a couple always are wanting a child. Yeah, so the, the, the next little section there, responsible parenthood, there are times when it's reasonable to not want to have a child. Um, so we'll look at this in, explicitly um, in one of our later lectures. Uh, the difference between natural family planning and artificial contraception. Um, but to, just to kind of at this stage to note that they aren't the same thing. 
that John Paul II would be saying that actually one of them respects the language of the body, one of them operates through the meaning of the body and how it functions, whereas the other seeks to dominate, manipulate, change the meaning, and therefore change, damage um, the gift of self between the two. So briefly though, responsible parenthood. So one of the points John Paul II makes is that human life is always a splendid gift of God's goodness, even when there's suffering or even if the life is unwanted, that life is always good. Um, but he reaffirms Gaudium et Spes in teaching, the teaching of Gaudium et Spes on responsible parenthood within conjugal love. Jacob, would you mind reading that block quote? In its true meaning, responsible procreation requires couples to be obedient to the Lord's call and to act as faithful interpreters of his plan. This happens when the family is generously open to new lives and when couples maintain an attitude of openness and service to life, even if, for serious reasons and in respect for the moral law, they choose to avoid a new birth for the time being or indefinitely. The moral law obliges them in every case to control the impulse of instinct and passion and to respect the biological laws inscribed in their person. It is precisely this respect which makes legitimate, at the service of responsible procreation, the use of natural methods of regulating fertility. As I say, we'll come on to that in more detail in a later lecture, but just to note that is here in uh, JPT's vision. So the gift of self is part of our original structure, love, we're made to give ourselves, the body has this language. Fertility is not a tag on extra to that, but is actually built into that meaning. And so we need to respect that meaning in how husband and wife relate to each other. Okay, page 10. So, I have a block quote here on page 10 about natural family planning. I say, I say that at the top of the page, reiterating humana vitae, uh, John Paul II taught the appropriateness of what's called natural family planning. Um, and before we look at those, that block quote there, I just want to draw your attention to some of his terms and therefore some of his emphases in that quote. So he talks about mutual respect. So there's something he's saying about natural family planning that has mutual respect that contraception doesn't have. That the man respects the body of the woman in respecting her bodily cycles. He doesn't just treat her as something to be available now when I want it. Dialogue. So a husband and wife have to communicate in natural family planning. They've got to communicate about what they're wanting physically. Uh, they've got to communicate about the time of her cycle, um, about the regularity, the irregularity, about um, all kinds of things in their bodily dimension. There's a whole thing of communication 
facilitated in natural family planning. It's a shared responsibility. So when you put the woman on the pill, there's nothing shared about that responsibility. It becomes her burden, her responsibility. And the man has what he wants at his convenience. Um, natural family planning, because it requires timing, spacing, has a shared dimension in the, the burden of working that out. Self-control. Um, so this is for both of them, but particularly I think in our culture, men don't have self-control and aren't used to thinking of the need for self-control. It trains a man in self-control, trains a man in what John Paul II calls self-mastery. I can't give myself to another unless I have dominion over myself. I'm master of myself. Um, so it's like dynamism, uh, personal love. It talks about irreconcilable concepts of the human person and sexuality. So again, this was in your reading material with kind of Bacon versus um, John Paul II. Um, there's a different vision of what a human person is. Is my body just raw matter to be disposed, manipulated as I wish, and all that really matters about me is my intellect, the rational being? Or is there a vision of the human person where my body is what I am? I am my body. Never used as an object, breaking the interpersonal unity of body and soul, soul and body. Um, and he says a deepest interaction of nature and person. Brian, would you mind reading the block quote there? When instead? When instead, by means of recourse to periods of infertility, the couple respect the inseparable connection between the unitive and appropriated meanings of human sexuality, they are acting as ministers of God's plan, and they benefit from their sexuality according to the original dynamism of total self-giving without manipulation or alteration. Yes, please. In the light of the experience of many couples and of the data provided by the different human sciences, theological reflection is able to proceed and is called to study further the difference, both anthropological and moral, between contraception and recourse to the rhythm of the cycle. It is a difference which is much wider and deeper than is usually thought. One which involves in the final analysis two irreconcilable different concepts of the human person and of human sexuality. The choice of the natural rhythms involves accepting the cycle of the person, that is the woman, and thereby accepting dialogue, reciprocal respect, shared responsibility, and self-control. To accept the cycle and to enter into dialogue means to recognize both the spiritual and corporal character of conjugal communion and to live personal love with its requirements of fidelity. 
In this context, the couple comes to experience how conjugal communion is enriched with those values of tenderness and affection, which constitute the inner soul of human sexuality, in its physical dimension also. In this way, sexuality is respected and promoted in its truly and fully human dimension, and is never used as an object that by breaking the personal unity of soul and body, strikes at God's creation itself at the level of the deepest interaction of nature and person. Thank you. Um, so, can I, I, I mean, I don't know how familiar we are with some of the concepts that are here um, in terms of the, what's involved in natural family planning, the significance of what's being said here. I guess, I guess what I would just say is, I mean, in, in the tradition and classical moral theology, really, if a couple was not able or willing to have children for whatever reason, the only morally permissible thing was abstinence. And this seems like it's kind of, I guess what it kind of seems like to me is it's kind of breaking in a sense with that tradition. So could you, I guess, kind of explain how you could reconcile the two? Because like, I'm just saying like in the, Certainly in the manualist tradition, even, but even I would say in strictly Thomistic thought, something like this doesn't seem like it would be morally permissible. The abstinence here is temporary, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So in an era before they had as much knowledge of the fem fem feminine cycles of fertility, it would be either total abstinence or really not knowing what was happening in terms of fertility. Um, here though you are respecting what is going on in the woman's fertility and you know what's going on and the fact that you know doesn't mean you are manipulating it. You're not changing it by the fact you know. So we'll come on later in the, in the course to the significance of the word open to life. So that's one of the translations of Humanibita. It's not actually an accurate translation. Um, retain its natural potential is what's actually in the Latin of the text in Humanibita. Um, so contraception changes the natural potential of the act. Whereas natural family planning just doesn't change the act. It knows whether the act at this time in the cycle is fertile or not, um, but it doesn't change it. And so the difference between what you're describing as an older practice and what's possible now is that you're able to time the abstinence more specifically, but that it's still abstinence. So by a couple abstaining today, they don't change the nature of the act they're going to ha have together in a week when they know she's not going to be fertile. So what they do that day doesn't change, isn't changed by their abstaining today when they know she is fertile. 
Whereas taking the pill, using a condom, is actually introducing something, obstructing something, doing something that changes the act. Some of the detail of that we will come back to later. Um, it's more the pattern of human relationship here that I, I think it, I'd like to be sure everyone's picking up in terms of what he's articulating. Because I think it is a big part of his vision, and particularly the vision as people like Christopher West have been articulating it in this country. Um, it changes marriage for the better when you have this pattern of communication that is kind of forced on the couple by this together monitoring her cycles of fertility. So Janet Smith notes that the divorce rates are different among couples that use natural family planning and those who use artificial contraception. So even among those that are practicing Catholics, the divorce rate, if you're a practicing Catholic who uses contraception or someone who uses natural family planning, what's the divorce rate? So Charles Curran, back in the day, he would have said, well, and I can remember, I'm old enough, I can remember it being said to me in school, contraception will mean life is easier for families. Contraception will mean there will be less divorce. Um, well, who today could look at what's happened in society and say less divorce? That certainly hasn't worked out. Well, what Janet Smith points to is we now have statistics research where within those within society, the, the subgroups of those Catholics who practice contraception, those who follow natural family planning. Well, the Catholics who use contraception have the same divorce rate, about 50%, as the society in general. Whereas those who use natural family planning have a divorce rate of between 2 and 4%, which is a huge difference. So far from suggesting that NFPs are burden being put on couples, the statistics indicate actually if it's doing anything, it's helping the marriage. And we can be honest and say not helping in an easy way, a simple way. Mm -hmm. It is, there's a, a work that needs to be put in there for that self-mastery. But at a popular level, when I've worked with youth, this is one of the points I've made. If you, you want a happy marriage, you know, even when they're a teenager, they have this idea still that there is a someone out there they want to be with for life. Well, what do you want to do? What do you need to do to make that marriage work for life? Well, this is one of the things to make it work for life so that you are less likely to be one of those people that where it doesn't last. It seems to me that uh, temporary abstinence and contraception they all have the same goal preventing the And the goal isn't the problem. So to, to, to desire not to have a child now isn't a bad thing or isn't necessarily a bad thing. So we'll come back to this when we look at the have electron responsible parenthood in itself. But that there are times in a married couple's life when it's right to now not want to have a child. 
But how do you get to that goal? The means to the end make a difference. In our, you know, that's one of our general Catholic principles. So contraception isn't wrong just because it's against having a child now. Often it's wrong because a couple will just have a blanket we never want to have a child. You know, there are lots of young couples out there or young non-couples hooking up randomly that they just, a blanket thing, never children. Well, that's contrary to the whole nuptial meaning of what you're about as a human being. But there are occasions when it's fine to not want to have a child. That we've not got much money now, my wife's sick, um, we're moving house next month, um, in two months I've got the job shift. There are lots of reasons why you might be wanting to postpone having a child at this moment. So it's not the end that's the problem, it's the means to the end. I think we will when we're talking about contraception and that that's the difference that will be articulated or I will be aiming to articulate at that stage. So the marital act, what is it about? It's about union and procreation. Um, it's still about that even when a woman isn't fertile that day of the month. It's still about that even when she reaches an age in her life when she's not fertile at all. Um, that's what the act is about. Contraception directly attacks the meaning of the act to change it. It doesn't just engage in the act even when it's not fully functional. So if I lose my glasses and I can't see properly, I am still seeing. My eye is still ordered to sight. It's just not doing its job fully. I've got six blurry things in front of me. Um, but I haven't caught, well, if I've lost my glasses, I haven't caused that. Now, if in contrast I take a screwdriver and deliberately blind myself, then I have deliberately damaged the proper functioning, not just as my physical eye, but of me as a human being. And that's a parallel of what's happening in contraception. You're taking something healthy and functioning and you're causing it not to function. We're going to come on to these questions more particularly later. So make a note that those are questions, but I'm pretty sure these are things that I'm, I know are important to cover and we will. I'm wanting us today to be thinking of the theology of the body in particular. Let's move on to 
Um, I've got a one-page summary on page 11. We might come back to that later. Um, let's first look at some comments on the theology of the body on page 12 and 13. So I've titled this section, Praise, Comments, and Criticisms of the Theology of the Body. And I start with some comments from John Grabowski. Um, Grabowski is interesting in that some people will refer to him as a defender of the theology of the body. I've heard other commentators refer to him as a critic. So I think he's trying to be balanced. But he notes a number of things. He says, both fans and critics of the theology of the body focus on matters of sex. And he argues that actually the theology of the body's focus is the whole person of which sex is but one integral component. He says the theology of the body articulated a new vision of dignity, purpose, and love against a tyrannical communist atheism and against an empty Western consumerism. A new vision of friendship and love enriched by the portrayal of self-gift. A new vision of masculinity and femininity and a complementarity, which he described, against a world that sees these things as mere social constructs. It's funny, after our looking at gender together in this course, I'm seeing that even more clearly now, reading some of these passages. And Grabowski says, a transcendent anthropology. So the original solitude in Adam is seeking God. And this is a very different anthropology from a world we're in that sees nothing beyond. And, you know, Kant's rationalist person, there's nothing transcendent. Well, that's what's been done positively. If that's what a praise might be made of him, what criticisms are there? Well, I start with um, the baby boomer complaints. So, you know, the, that generation of people that are now past retirement age, um, the standard Vatican II generation complaints. Um, so the spirit of Vatican II generation criticized JP2's theology of the body because of its defense of those truths that they reject. So just quoting a few examples, Margaret Farley sees it as simply new language for excluding divorced and remarried Catholics. I think you've got to really have a pet peeve to be linking that against the theology of the body. Um, Lisa Carhill laments in particular the rejection of contraception. Um, Lawland Salzman sees theology of the body as merely heterosexual theology. So presumably wanting queer theology, whatever's the right term now. Um, then... Um, they also say theology of the body is the old wine of biologism, physicalism, and classicalism of the manuals of moral theology in the new wineskin of Thomistic personalism and a theology of the body. Now, I note that some of us wouldn't see that as a bad thing, but those, those old <laughs> things did, did need new wineskin. Um, anyway, so those are some of the critics. I have a little 
different bullet point section here that I think is actually a more subtle criticism. Um, basically, that, noting that sex and love are actually rarely perfect. And there is something in his whole description here that does somehow seem to be talking about perfect. Well, where does that leave people who don't experience perfect love, don't experience perfect sex? So Kathleen Cavani says, the reality of sin, suffering in a fallen world mean that JP2's positive portrayal of sex is likely to disappoint. What if other people, bad luck or bad timing mean that you can never live this lovely picture of metaphysical and sexual harmony. Anissa Cahill similarly says, J.P. Chu's portrayal depends upon a very romanticized description of sex. And even if marital love, and even of marital love, a romantic, overly romanticized version of marital love, in the most ideal of circumstances, human beings rarely, if ever, accomplish total self-care, she says. I think there's a fair comments to be making, but I don't think they change that actually this is the deeper meaning of what a human being is. So just to say many humans don't get to the fullness of happiness doesn't mean we should therefore say we're going to abandon the quest for happiness. But I do think those are worth noting. And so if in a parish context, you're talking about these things. And if you're talking about the fullness of a, a husband-wife relationship, we need to be aware of the many for whom you, know, you might fail to have a perfect marriage, not on your part, but on your spouse's. Um, though often with a bit of both of you. Now, more specifically, page 13 is a summary, basically, of Christopher West. Christopher West and criticisms of Christopher West. You're familiar with the name Christopher West, and some of you, I'm sure, have actually listened to him or read some of his stuff. Christopher West is an American, not just writer, he's written a number of books, very popular speaker. He, tours the country speaking all kinds of particularly to young Catholics and to young married couples or those preparing for marriage um, so he's taken this whole theology of the body and kind of used it to sell the church's teaching that you want a happy sexual life this is the way to have a happy sexual life um, and he's been very effective at an apologetic and popular level so he's not a top-grade theologian, but he, he is a theologian. He's written enough books, he does deserve that category. But he's even more a populist, a crusader, in a sense, for John Paul II's vision. Okay, going through my notes here. West has offered a positive and appealing presentation of the goodness and beauty of sex. He has transformed many diocesan youth programs and marriage preparation programs. But I say there is disagreement as to what degree West faithfully presents John Paul II. So many commentators would say actually he's twisted JP2 on a number of points so that a criticism of Christopher West 
isn't necessarily a criticism of John Paul II. Yeah. Okay, so what does West claim? So I've got a series of bullet points with some comments about what Christopher West claims. He says, marriage and sex are the heart of John Paul II's good news to our contemporary society. So you might remember the very first lecture I had with you when I talked about the context of the new evangelization and wanting to present to you a vision of chastity as a positive, a tool in the new evangelization. Christopher West would be at the heart of this vision of where sexual morality fits. This is what our societies are looking for. We've got the product to sell you. Therefore, come and know the Lord. Okay, what does West claim in detail? He says, marriage and sex are, are the grammar, not and the grammar, are the grammar through which God's revelation and plan are made known to us. Now that's a big claim. How does God communicate his plan? Actually through marriage and sex, primarily. He says, we cannot understand Christianity if we cannot understand the truth and meaning of our sexuality. That's a big claim again. Um, now, Matheson, who I footnote there, um, critiques West on this point, but he notes that actually this is something John Paul II himself says in his letter to families. Now, Matheson's complaint is this gives what he calls undue ultimacy to sex. He says it makes sex seem too important for a Christian. West also says, of all the ways that God chooses to reveal his life and love in the created world, John Paul II is saying marriage, enacted and consummated by sexual union, is the most fundamental. The most fundamental way of God revealing his life and love. Okay, that's a big claim. How does God choose to reveal himself? Well, this would seem to be saying, not through salvation history and the exodus and the slavery in Egypt and the exile into Babylon and being brought back. No, the ultimate way he does it is through, through marriage and the consummation of sexual love. Matheson notes that West says that, but he doesn't actually give any reference to John Paul II to back up that Christopher West also says, God gave us sexual desire to be the power to love as he loves, so that we can participate in divine life and fulfill the very meaning and being of our existence. Sexual desire is the power to love as he loves. Now Grabowski comments that this has sex replaced the role traditionally given to grace. Grace is what makes the divine love within us, not the power of the urge for sex. And Matheson notes these quotations make sex the point of the Christian story, and sexual desire the imago dei, the, the image of God. And so Matheson claims that West misrepresents John Paul II on this point too. So if we summarize those criticisms of West, he says, 
this is all quoting Matheson, but then lastly Grabowski. Though attractive to young Catholics, who are understandably preoccupied with the subject of sex due to their age and the culture in which we live, claims such as those analyzed above violate the Christian tradition's affirmation of, but simultaneous relativization of, marriage and sex in the Christian life understood from an eschatological perspective. He says, West has made marriage and sex too central in the Christian life. In Grabowski's comment, West romanticizes marital sex, making it bear a weight of meaning and experiential fulfillment that it cannot carry. Comments. First, you understand what West is claiming. I understand the critique of that. of Christopher West and Ignotic's course does he touch on West? Um, he made one passing comment which was not positive it was Christopher West interesting right <laughs> yeah yeah he, he's in this he didn't offer any particular criticisms but he would certainly be of the camp that says that Christopher West doesn't authentically represent And yet he is by far the biggest name claiming to do so. And he has clearly done a lot of good in that a lot of people take the church seriously because they take this seriously. I don't know if Dr. Yannick was saying West was wrong necessarily because he's looking at it, Dr. Yannick's looking at it from an academic point. Right. Um, just that it wasn't as faithful a representation of John Paul II as it Though Grabowski there is reacting to that quote from West in terms of, because what you said is definitely right. Um, I guess it depends on what West means. 
just says sexual desire. Yeah. Don't hold the second has a very particular meaning. So he talks about the sexual drive. And if, as I've said before, a lot of John Paul II's writing is using poetry and analogy, then West, it would seem to me, may well be trying to equate things that in John Paul II are true but not equal, the same reality. And therefore, a subtlety that's in John Paul II is lost in this portrayal. Because otherwise, so I can remember when I was at the Dominican House of Studies, so in a, a house of pure Thomism, um, and, and next door, and even sometimes sharing some of our rooms, we had the John Paul II Institute, who in Washington, D.C. are very anti-Thomas, whereas the JP2 Institute in Austria and Rome are very Thomistic. Um, where was I going with that? Anyway, um, I can remember one speaker in particular that was kind of a public lecture and all the Dominicans ranting about how the speaker was making the father marry the son. Um, and it was, I think, something to do with this thing of the difference between speaking analogically or not. Um, and so to say the Trinity is a family, you have to be using analogy. And there's a certain type of commentator of John Paul II that hasn't got enough philosophy to know what analogy is. And so we'll say things like, it's literally the same thing. So actually Scott Harm will say that quite a bit. And I'm not sure he's got the doctrine of analogy in there, much as I respect him in a great many things. Any other comments? We are summarizing to repeat a lot here. So there's going to be a lot that hasn't been said. To have grasped the point that this is a different packaging of sexual morality. It's a packaging that is in continuity with the tradition in that kind of the conclusions, we end up somehow being the same conclusions, but it's just a much more positive, personal, interpersonal way of describing all these things. I think as I just did, just to say that not everybody gets happiness, achieves happiness, isn't a reason to say therefore you shouldn't seek happiness. And that just because not everybody achieves the fullness of what sex and marriage can be, doesn't mean you shouldn't seek to achieve it and seek to propose it to others as, as saying this is what marriage and sex are really about. 
And so if you're unhappy in it, actually this kind of explains why. I'm not sure if anyone else has something to throw in on that. Any comments on the reading material that I haven't covered? I think I've tried to integrate most of the comments that were in here in different things in my notes. So a couple of us were talking in the bar last night about bacon. Um, so, and I don't know how, so he refers to, how does he phrase it? The Baconian project? Hmm? Which is, so he should have just stuck with food. <laughs> um, the Baconian program, he calls it. Um, so this vision of science, this modern with a capital M, whereas we are postmodern or post-postmodern now, but back in the day, the modern program, the, the scientific program, we will conquer the world, we will conquer nature, and therefore even conquer our own body. And the, our body is therefore just an obstacle to the rational brain doing whatever it wants. I was struck reading this of how Pope Francis actually makes the same points about manipulating nature, um, imposing ideology on nature. These are repeated themes in Pope Francis um, that actually I had noticed just how much they tie in with this same, same concern that's coming from a different angle. So Pope Francis will talk about that with respect to the environment, especially, and poverty. But Pope Francis will say we need to learn from nature, we need to learn from reality, which is just what John Paul II is saying about the body. Not just to treat the body as mere matter, raw data to manipulate, but I learn from my body.
caffeine, great thinkers of the 20th century, who, especially that block quote from Gaffney on 102, 103, just has a very uninspiring view of sex talk about the humanizing duty of man and how that relates to that justifies contraception. Yeah, and how much is this in our own thinking? You know, I'm, I'm trying to be a good Orthodox Catholic, but actually, without knowing it, I'm, I'm corrupted with all of this as well. I think it's one of those things that we just need to be always asking ourselves those questions. What has influenced me? And always wanting, you know, I'm 50 years old now and I'm still trying to learn. I'm still trying to refresh my philosophy. Um, and I'm still having that moment I think you're describing where I'm seeing something and thinking, hey, actually that, that might be there inside. Um, There's an irony there of two visions of the relationship between mind and matter that both think they're positive. So the vision that thinks we can move beyond matter, we can conquer it, thinks that's very positive. Um, whereas there's a different positive vision in John Paul II that says, no, actually you are your body and this is a great thing. your body is a great thing, that this, this meaning of, of gift, of nuptial meaning, of love, that this is a great thing and this is what you are. Um. And can I just repeat the point that I did say earlier? So. Kant's vision of the human person, Descartes' vision of the human person, the rational thinker, you know, I think, therefore I am. This is a profoundly lonely vision of the human person. That what I am is I am a thinking being, alone in my thoughts, with no inherent connection with the world around me. And John Paul II's vision is the very opposite that what I am is not just an isolated thought, but a living body, a soul-body unity. And I look at my body and I see what I am, and I am made for others, I am made for love. And, and my, my very physical constitution shows this to me. Okay, final point before the silent bell rings. Um, <laughs> For us as celibates, so what does all this language of self-gift mean? Because we're not going to be physically giving ourselves, but, and John Paul II is very explicit in applying all of this to celibacy, this vision is also for us telling us what celibacy is, that celibacy isn't being isolated, being alone, being some 
Kantian rational being divorced and in control of myself. No, I am 